This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helene Andergroot. Today, the land is the center. When you read about the history of Hawaii, it's funny how suddenly the passive voice seems to be the only way to form a sentence. It usually goes something like this. What happened in Hawaii, with no mention of who actually did those things, was first diseases were introduced. Measles, smallpox, venereal disease, wiping out over 80% of native Hawaiians. Then the ecosystem was destroyed, eaten up by imported cattle, crowded out by non-native plants, cut, sold, burned, you name it. Hawaiian culture was next. Language, mythology, song, social customs, all Americanized. What happened after that? The queen was imprisoned, the constitutional monarchy overthrown, Hawaii was declared a U.S. territory and finally a U.S. state. Not that it ended there. I have to mention decades more of land grabs, the ever-expanding U.S. military presence, the continued pollution of the soil and water, not to mention the slightly overwhelming fact that tourists on Hawaii outnumber people who actually live there by almost eight to one. What you don't often hear about is active resistance. Like that song you hear in the background? That was something Queen Lili Uokalani wrote for her people while imprisoned. Even though she wasn't allowed to communicate with them and was not allowed access to her musical instruments. Three quarters of a century later, you had the Hawaiian sovereignty movement. One of the leaders of the movement was the indigenous writer, activist, and poet Haunani K. Trask, who fought not just to rid Hawaii of the U.S. occupation, but also poured her heart and soul into recovering, protecting, and teaching centuries of Hawaiian culture. Haunani K. Trask died last summer, but her example inspired more than one generation of activists and artists. One of those artists is the poet and performance artist Nou Rivilla, who changed the whole direction of her life after she came across Haunani K. Trask's writing. Rivilla just published her debut poetry collection, Ask the Brindles. But before we got to her poetry, I asked her about the moment she found Haunani. So I was attending NYU and I was majoring in journalism. <laughs> I mean, it, there's nothing, I mean, journalism is a uh, very important career. Our journalists are important, but it's such a, you know, it's so different from the life I live now. And I I wanted to make my life in New York um, mm. from when I was little. That was where you made shit happen. And my mother hated it here. She dropped me off and she's just like, I hate this city. Everyone is just, you know, in their own little cloud. And, you know, anonymity is really the name of the game here until you work your way up. Whoever's ladder is the ladder with the capital L. And I loved that. I, you know, at that time, I just, no, I'm going to keep my head down. I'm going to work hard. And then I had this wonderful writing class that asked us to write a review of a book of essays. And because I am utterly 
devoted to libraries. I was just kind of waltzing through the library like you do. And I literally found her on the bottom shelf in Bob's library. It was from a native daughter. And I pulled it out and it's her collection of essays. And it's a phenomenal, iconic text here in Hawaii across the globe for anyone studying you know, indigenous feminism or decolonization, sovereignty movements. You are reading this book. You have read this book. I open it up and there's this essay called From a Native Daughter. And in it, she she talks about, you know, I had to put all these things down and go out into the aina and put my hands into the ground. I had to plant something. I had to learn Hawaiian language. And then I'm reading her and she has such tenderness. And yet you flip the page and she has the most incredible ferocity because she knows how to protect her people. She wants to protect her people. And the capacity she demonstrated for rage and rapture in the same voice. And it was all dedicated to the aloha she has for our country, for our people, for our vitality. I had never seen anything like that in my life. And she was unapologetically feminist. And all the parts of me, I thought, did not belong. I saw in her, uh, then I found her poetry and it was over. (laughs) That's amazing. So that was that for your journalism career, basically? Oh, that was... (laughs) I was, it was done. It was done. <laughs> and at that time, because you mentioned the word aina, which I, I would describe as land, but it has a whole cloud of other meanings. So maybe can you tell me a little bit about that? What that word or that concept meant to you at the time and how you've come to understand and live it since? So one of the things that was very important for me and what I found to be quite generous on her part was she included a glossary in her books, uh, both her poetry collections and her book of essays. And as a Hawaiian woman who did not grow up speaking or learning Hawaiian, who was not rewarded institutionally to invest in my own culture, When I found her book, it was exhilarating. It touched parts of me that were intuitive and ancestral. But I didn't know what she meant when she would refer to new, you know, our word for coconut or ulu, our word for breadfruit and all these different things. And then she would have these notes and a glossary. And so her glossary, of course, contained translations of Hawaiian language but also she would have these small notes in her poetry collection that offered context for her politics, right? Particularly when it came to decolonization and sovereignty for Hawaii. And as a woman in diaspora, as a Hawaiian woman who didn't know the language, it was just a gift. Like it was such a way of her embracing us instead of rejecting us. It was you, 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 and you come home. We have a movement. You belong home, come home, all of you. Um, so Aina is very expansive and it's very inclusive. A common way of 
expressing that word in English is that which feeds and will not usually be limited to land is also an expression of your fresh water and your ocean. So that which feeds. And aloha aina is our expression of, you know, love of love of the land and lover of land, protector of land. Um, aloha aina is a practice, it's a responsibility, it's a sphere of privilege. Um, yeah. And so then you moved from New York to Hawaii. How how did that happen? So I don't know if you know this. You probably do. NYU is a very expensive institution. <laughs> yes. And um, I was mostly able to be there financially because I had a scholarship that supported Native Hawaiian students. But the government decided that my scholarship was prejudiced because it supported Hawaiian students only. So this incredibly generous scholarship that I earned was taken away from me. Wow. And I, my family couldn't afford that. I mean, how many families can? <laughs> of course. So yeah. very cosmically, I found Honani and I came home. And I enrolled at UH Manoa and I found the first class that I could that was being taught by Dr. Hanani Ketrask. Wow. I'm so interested what it was like for you to go from the book to the person, you know, when you were actually in her class. Oh. Oh. <laughs> How old were you at this I mean, point? Maybe 22 in my early 20s. And at that point, I would have studied anything to be a student of hers, you know, because she was a very interdisciplinary thinker and teacher. So, you know, she taught classes on Hawaiian history, on Hawaiian politics, and just a very rigorous set of intersecting fields. And again, quite cosmically, the first class I was able to take with her was devoted to modern Pacific women's poetry. And I mm -hmm. was able to meet her through poetry and not just any poetry, but poetry by Pacifica women authors who were poets. So it was just a beautiful way to introduce myself and to, to study uh, with her. I mean, and it wasn't just me. I remember being in the classroom and we were all sitting down around this beautiful table and it was a classroom of women, young indigenous women who found this woman some way and needed to learn from her. So when she came into the room, like my, my heart was beating so fast and blood was rushing to my head and what I thought was thunder literally happening in my body. When she started to speak, she was so eloquent and so graceful and so sure. And it was such a calming effect, like not a lullaby that made you go to sleep, but the way she spoke, it was just like, oh, we're here to do work and we belong here too. 
And that was the effect she had, you know, simultaneously throwing down a gauntlet, but making sure you knew you belong here and you can do this alongside me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because that was also something I noticed in your book. You know, um, by the way, speaking of glossaries, I had made my way maybe a third of the way through your book, uh, looking up every word I didn't know and going off on these, you know, really deep Mm -hmm. dives because sometimes it wasn't just a word, but it was a phrase from another poem or or like a, a saying that has multiple. Anyway, I spent a ridiculous amount of time on that before I thought, maybe there's a glossary (laughs) in the end of the book. (laughs) And indeed there was. Um, And there's also context, a little bit of history, some stories. And I'm wondering about the the process of you learning the Hawaiian language, you know, because every language, of course, comes with context. Like you cannot learn a language without learning the context that it comes with, right? Mm -hmm. But I think... That is especially true when the context has been all but erased. Mm-hmm. And so I'm almost imagining it like uh, the work of an archaeologist or whatever, that every word becomes like a shard that tells an entire story, you mm-hmm. know, about cosmology, about mm-hmm. values, about, you know, what is seen as sacred and mm-hmm. what is seen as worth protecting and fighting for. And so can you tell me a little bit what it was like for you to learn the language mm-hmm. in that kind of broader way, you know, context included? You know, one of the things I loved about Haunani is that she would say, of course, I'm a poet. I'm Hawaiian, you know, and she would say it like, I don't need to explain myself. And I loved her audacity. Like, and when you learn Olelo Hawaii, you understand very quickly because poetry is about paying attention, slowing down and really paying attention to the world around you. So we have, we have names for very specific, different kinds of rain. And not just there's a name for the rain on the island of Oahu. There is a name for the valley I live in, which is Palolo. There is a name for the next valley over. There is a name for the next valley over. Even this valley here have different rains. So they have different names. And that means that my kupuna took the time to look and observe how these rains fell from the sky what happened when they hit the ground, how they moved into the ocean, how they fed certain plants. And based on all of those micro movements and dynamics gave them a name because they had to name them because it it was part of a very intricate system of how they nourished the land and each other. And just when you step into that knowledge and when you step into that history, you realize that's exactly what a poet does. That's what a poet does. So, you know, of course I'm a poet. <laughs> I'm, I'm Hawaiian. <laughs> right. Like um, looking very carefully, looking for connections between things, relationships. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. You know, and of course, I didn't begin learning Olelo Hawaii until I was in my mid-20s. And I'm still learning. Um, I'm still very nervous because it's it's a very poetic language. So of course you can convey information, but what really stands out in terms of our conversations is 
can you say this beautifully? Um, yeah. And in Hawaiian language, we have the word mo'olelo, which not only describes myth and literature, but also encompasses history. So for me, the word mo'olelo is one of the many words that reflect the non-binary brilliance of Oivi knowledge because mo'olelo really rivers between the oral and the written, fiction and nonfiction, myth and history. So that, that capaciousness alone leads me into storytelling very differently. You know, the, the precedent is based on rigor and abundance rather than rigor and scarcity. And, you know, of wow. course... Yeah. <laughs> Rigor and abundance. I have never thought of these words together, but they are so fecund. Is that the word? Oh, you know, I, I can love just... fecund. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Oh. Well, I was wondering if we can get to a poem. Um, maybe Mo'olelo is the theory. It's on page 11 Absolutely. since we were talking about Mo'olelo. Absolutely. Hold on one second. Oh, and could you maybe tell me where you found this Mo'olelo, you know, this myth? Um, so we have one of the largest repositories of indigenous language newspapers. And so many of our newspapers in our language were these epics that were serialized for years. I'm talking like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages devoted to telling one story. And because another Hawaiian read it and would say, that's not how I learned it here on Maui, I'm going to tell a different one. And it was just a very interactive and open and multiple and simultaneous practice of telling stories. And when was this? So during the 19th century, you know, and a lot of a lot of things were happening in the 19th century in Hawaii, not to mention the illegal takeover of the Kingdom of Hawaii by American forces. You know, and Hawaiians really took to writing with a passion. It was a different tool to tell Hawaiian stories, you know. So newspapers began, you know, kind of in the spirit of proselytizing Hawaiians, you know, telling Christian stories, telling American stories. But very quickly, Hawaiian editors started their own newspapers, Hawaiian activists, Hawaiian composers started their own newspapers and, you know, writing these epics that would last over so many years. So while things may have started with the colonizing impulse, you know, indigenous folk, we have agency, you know, so we took the tool that you gave us that was meant to do this. Mm -hmm. And then we created this entire tradition that has nothing to do with you. Um, yeah, I'm very proud. And the archive of new, and we call them new Peppa. The archive is very impressive. And the work of digitizing these newspapers are, is ongoing. Mm -hmm. And it's made such a difference in OEV scholarship throughout the years, because we have access now to what was written by our great, great grandparents. You know, we have access to what they actually wrote. We, we have access to stories that on the day of the overthrow, and I'm going to get emotional talking about it, but 
how people wrote into the newspapers trying to describe the wailing and what it sounded like when um, they seized our country. Um, so yeah, so many things, so much information and life are in those newspapers and we're very we're very equipped protectors because of that yeah yeah i i promise we will get to the poem but uh, <laughs> i love this <laughs> i love this conversation <laughs> well but before we um we go to the poem because you started explaining okay so the title is mo'olelo is the theory mm -hmm. and so can you tell me what is mo'olelo or what are mo'olelo and then what is a mo can you just really absolutely you know absolutely because people haven't read the book when they listen so in hawaiian language mo'olelo describes not only myth and literature but it also encompasses history it's a very capacious word and approach to storytelling and in the word mo'olelo you have the prefix mo and mo'o refers to shape-shifting water protectors who primarily take the form of women and lizards. Uh, in Hawaiian language, mo'o is also a prefix in words like mo'oku oho, which means genealogy, or mo'opuna, which means grandchild. So the word mo'o signifies oivi understandings of relationality. And it's no surprise that the vertebrae of of lizards, of mo'o, often symbolize succession in my culture. And protection is also embedded in this conceptual assemblage of mo'o. And as the brindled, in a way, attempts to map this protection. And mo'olelo is the theory, is one of those poems that do that work. Right. And then, uh, sorry, last thing. So, and then the de dedication can you explain a little bit what those two well, gods are? And can you just talk a little bit about those? So Hauvahine and Kahalakea are two mo'o who are guardians of fresh water in Kailua on the island of Oahu. And they appear in a very beloved and well-known mo'olelo called Hi'iaka Ikapolio Pele. And in the version of the story that many people know, the protagonist, Hi'iaka, is traveling with her companion and her companion sees these two beautiful women near water and makes a comment and says, hey, look at those two beautiful women. And Hi'iaka, who is very intelligent and insightful, looks to the women and says, they're not women, they're mo'o. Her companion no, they're not mole, they're just women. So Hiyaka said, watch what happens uh, when I call out to them. And in the story that everybody hears, you know, Hiyaka calls out to them and then they just disappear because in the version people have learned, the mole are scared of Hiyaka. However, Let's go back to Hawaiian abundance. There are so many versions of that story. And again, you have to be able to read the Hawaiian language version. 
because these are English translations. So one of the versions of that story, one of my favorites, really emphasizes that, oh, how about we talk about consent? We didn't say you could stop on your walking and just look at us and stare at us. And in my mind, as a queer Hawaiian woman, I'm thinking that what if these two are lovers and they were making love? What if they were swimming naked and enjoying themselves? Because even if you're a protector, you do deserve to take care of yourself and nourish yourself and pleasure is political. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, who are you to like call out to us and interrupt us just for the sake of demonstrating to your companion, you know, what's up. So (laughs) in the version of the story that I love, Hovahine sees that she's being rudely interrupted, that her and Kahalakea are no longer alone. So she splashes the water, which sends the birds up to the sun, blocks the sun, and they are able to get away. And they don't go away because they're afraid of Hi'iaka. They go away because they want to be alone, because this isn't for you, Hi'iaka. So for me, it was really important to tell the mo'o side of the story (laughs) and, (laughs) you know, really talk about consent and, hey, just because we left doesn't mean it's because you have superiority. Why don't you think of it as maybe we left because we don't want to be near you. We want to be left alone. We want to enjoy each other. Um, Yeah. So that's what this poem comes from. (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm finally ready for the poem. If you are. (laughs) Okay. Mo'olelo is the theory for Hauvahine and Kahalakea. You splashed the water and flew the birds, vanishing before a different clan could follow you. At Kavainui, they stopped to disturb your lovemaking and lurk. I'm still splashing water, still flying birds. Your descendants, centuries later, unseen, unanswered. We never asked them, watch us. Yes, please swallow us like water. We never splashed for them. Even the birds know where we vanish. They can't follow. Thank you. Thank you. This really gives me goosebumps just because it reverberates so clearly in you know the very fraught relationship that native hawaiians have with tourists um yes you <laughs> yes she said the t so word do, yeah. <laughs> yeah please you know um take it away i would say you know it's, i i'm just very curious to to see how you've been thinking about that and especially because the pandemic when flights were grounded and tourists were not allowed to come to Hawaii it was the first time in anyone's lifetime that Hawaiians experienced what that was like to live with each other rather Mm -hmm. than with people who don't uh, know what your home even is and think that it's just a a big uh, resort Mm -hmm. I guess Mm mm-hmm Thank you for this. And, you know, it it brings me back to 
another saying in Hawaiian, you know, you have one day to be a guest. After that, you have to earn your time because you are literally taking resources from this place that is not yours. You have one day to be a guest. After that, earn your time here. So I live in Palolo Valley, which is located in the Ahupua'a of Waikiki. And in Hawaii, an Ahupua'a is a traditional division of land that goes from the mountain to the sea. And Waikiki is a deeply storied place that has fed Hawaiians in so many ways throughout the centuries, you know, and the name Waikiki refers to the spouting waters of what were very rich wetlands and extensive aquaculture systems. Yet because of mass corporate tourism and the aggressive entitlement that tourists feel they have, because to them, this is paradise and paradise belongs to those who pay to play, right? So because of this, I usually don't like going to Waikiki because you have to compete with all of that just to walk down the street. And it's not Waikiki. It's not Waikiki. It's what's been done to Waikiki. And I have a poem in my book, Recovery Waikiki. Um, Recovery was a common trope in mainstream media at this time that you're talking about. And the metric for Hawaii's recovery was not the health and vitality of its own people, but the number of tourists coming back on planes and cruise ships. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so at first, when I wrote the poem, Recovery Waikiki, I wrote it to sort of throw myself against that metric. But as I kept revising, and I think this is true for the spirit of the book overall, it became less about what I can call out and more about what I can help grow. Um, So I believe in generative refusal. I believe in the power of generative refusal, but I I feel like, you know, Ask the Brindle became a book about aloha and who I want to embrace and who I want to invest in. It's a book for my people. You know, and it's I want to spend less time, less energy on extractive things and more time planting seeds. Yeah. The poem also invokes the Kumulipo, which is a creation story. And there is also the word ma'i. I refer to ma'i songs later in the poem and ma'i denotes your genitals, but it also denotes succession. So we actually had, you know, in our history, composed melema'i, which, you know, crassly translated is a genital chant or genital song, but it's devoted to one's lineage. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sexuality and succession and belonging, desire and belonging, they're so woven in my culture. And that's, that's how I was raised, you know, like there was no shame about sex because sex was so much a part of, of how you, how you got here. You know, it was never a secret. Like you came in from a bird, you know what I mean? Like, and then it's just very much like, 
who is doing the shaming and who gets shamed. So I've been digging through that for years now because the shame of being, you know, a lesbian, the shame of being Hawaiian, the shame of being a survivor, all of that I've struggled through. But importantly, I've, I never had to struggle through it alone because the women in my life made sure to raise me to know I'm not alone. I will never be alone. And no surprise, the poem is dedicated to Haunani, (laughs) who, by the way, you know, one of the things that uh, she was known for, again, an unapologetic woman who knew who she was and was proud of her role as a kia'i, as a activist, as a teacher, as a mentor. And she was fiercely well-read. She worked her ass off to know what she was talking about when she talked about decolonization and sovereignty. And um, so she would be teaching about Hawaiian politics. And, you know, at a certain point, she was like, and if you don't like it, 10 flights a day, get the hell out of my country. Right. (laughs) You know, and I think it was jarring for a lot of people to hear my country because you come to Hawaii and you still think this is America. Yeah, Yeah, it's not. We are in a legally occupied country. So when she would say country, you even had Hawaiians in the class who weren't used to hearing that going, what? Mm-hmm. What? Interesting. And then you see that light just open in their eyes like, that's right. This yeah. is our... Like, did we give you consent to uh, take this place? I don't not. think we did. Absolutely yeah. not. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not a surprise that this is for her. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's such a, you know... It was something else to be able to paddle out in the water at Waikiki and look around and catch waves and just sit and see my people in the water. And we don't have to compete with drunk hordes of tourists hanging out of catamarans screaming, I just got laid or tourists crashing into your surfboard because they're too busy posing on their GoPros, you know? It was, I get it. Like some people don't know how to respect the ocean because they don't know ocean. But there's a difference between coming here and not knowing and then choosing to remain ignorant. Choosing not to put that work in. If you don't know how to respect the ocean, learn. Because I tell you, she will teach you very quickly. Yeah. (laughs) So this poem, Recovery Waikiki, is, is definitely about a Moana consciousness, a ocean consciousness, because so many people like to think of, you know, they look at the ocean from the land, but it's very different when you look at the land from the ocean. Yeah. Mm. Um, so recovery Waikiki for Hanani. To the season without visitors, my single fin is another eulogy. The sunscreen slick of queens is knifed by it, and the cut remembers somewhere deeper, somewhere far, far before. The white procession from here could look like whitewash, and we could believe from far out here the ocean was not cauterizing a wound again. Again, we're drifting, 
For every street with an Ali'i name, 10,000 golden plovers. Funerals are everywhere. Every time a tourist, whether warm or reckless, every time a tourist, zero fucks given and helicopter rescue. Every time a tourist, whether cash or card, every time a tourist says, lucky we and paradise. What if that stays in the air like dead skin or drugs in a system that never disappears? Drifting. We are wasting gods on this wave. To be this far out and learn nothing but how to count 10,000 golden plovers backwards. This is bird shit before it dries. It is Waikiki as covers of love songs, recovering love songs. I am recovering love. As I paddle past the line of dead bees, puffer fish, discarded lay in the ocean. What sickness do they mean when the newspapers say that Waikiki is recovering now? From the shore, tourists must mistake us for brown water advisories, moving targets, a graveyard to be. But my digging is descent. Before paddling this far out, I dug 10,000 eel-sized holes into the groin facing the Royal Hawaiian. I blew mutty songs inside them. From 10,000 holes in the season without visitors, watch the kumulipo re-emerge and take back Waikiki. Wow. Thank you. It's so there are so many more meanings that are added when you read it. Thank you. I love yeah, yeah I I believe that. I think poetry belongs in the body, right? Yeah. 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 Especially yours. Um, oh. Some Elena. poetry is more cerebral, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I also think, you know, and I, I teach my students this, like performance and spoken word is so important. You know, you are coming today with everything that's going on with your life and where you are today mentally and spiritually and emotionally and physically, you're bringing all that. I'm bringing all of that. And there's no reenacting this dynamic we have today. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, on the page, I get to return and I get to bring my new every time and I get to come back. You know, you can't come back to the same electricity twice. It's always going to be different in terms of performance. But the page is this very beautiful and generative space of return. Yeah. And maybe it's a little bit like how Nani's essay collection was for you when you first read it. Like, yes, it was published. It was written down. And yes, there was a glossary. But it was only a beginning, right? Like, it's an invitation to yes. then come to her, you know? And I feel like your poems are the same. Like, oh. they were printed. There's a glossary. And I read them as an invitation to come to you. Yes. 
invitations. <laughs> and that's what literature is, right? An invitation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, back to consent and to guests and overstaying your welcome and all that, right? Like imagine how different things would be if people would come invited. How Nani would say that, you know, she would say, I don't go anywhere unless I'm invited. Yeah. And that's a tall, that's a tall gauntlet. That's not yeah. right to say. Gauntlets aren't tall. That's a gauntlet to throw down. Tall order. That's I a think. tall yes. order. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my metaphors are getting. It's funny all that you have up. just banned the word order from your vocabulary. It's like I don't like that. I stuff. don't. I, <laughs> I know. I'm trying to really exercise order yes. and control out of my vocabulary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she would say that, like I wouldn't go anywhere unless I'm invited. That was part of her practice. That's yeah. amazing. She wouldn't go unless she was invited by someone who was of that place. Yes. And I think that's that is a tall order. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. Certainly. And I think but it, I think it's so interesting because it really radically sort of turns on its head the colonial mindset, right? Like I can just come somewhere and take it. Yes. Um but I think most of us tourists we don't see ourselves as colonizers, right? And also one of us isn't. It's just when hordes come, mm-hmm. when it becomes sort of systemic, that places get destroyed. Um, well, you know, you know what's interesting for us is that, so that saying I said earlier, you have one day to be a guest. That word malihini suggests um, foreigner, right? Mm-hmm. However... I am Malihini to this island of Oahu in very real ways because I was not born and raised here. And our word kama'aina doesn't mean native Hawaiian and it doesn't mean, oh, I was born and raised here. It's very specific to a specific place, not even an island, but a specific place on that island. And in order to be kama'aina, you have to be able to know the names of the rains and the rivers and the water and the grass and the winds. You have to be able to be recognized by the community there. That's how you earn kama'aina. So Hawaiians could be malihini to other places because in order to belong to place, you've got to earn it. And that work is work because you... So, so many of our mo'olelo the stature of a person, the enormity of their knowledge was expressed when they could go from place to place and recite the names of that place's winds and rains and cite stories and their heroes and their leaders and what they were known for because they knew place so intimately. That earned you respect, that earned you passage through a place. Um, again, we go back to that rigor and abundance, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, fa- you're making so many things spark in, in my mind, you know, because yes, it's a tall order to only go where you're invited. And I don't know if I could ever do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think what you're saying now about, you know, when you travel, make sure that you know you know, whatever proves that you have done your homework, that you want to earn your right to, be to there. see a new place. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, I think for indigenous people, this is common sense. You are not the center. The, 
the land is the center. And I don't know why it's you go somewhere and you think you're the rock star. You're not. Yeah. <laughs> yes. There, there are no rock stars. This is not a concert. This is you establishing a relationship with another place. And yeah, that is what's central. I don't I don't understand being in a place that is not yours and not prioritizing the work of cultivating some sense of knowledge of what is this place, you know? Yeah. I want to ask you one last question. Um, I think one accusation that people could level against people like you, activists like you, you know, act activists like your mentor, uh, Haunani K. Trask, you know, fighting for indigenous sovereignty, fighting for the preservation, preservation and recovery, not just of the land, but of the stories attached to that land, to the people who know the stories attached to that land. And the accusation that could be leveled is that, you know, it's some sort of uh, nostalgia dream, you know, that you're living in the past, that it's a kind of Hawaiian version of, you know, um, make Hawaii great again. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I needed to. Yeah. But, you know, but there was an essay that you referred to in your book by an activist who writes, it's not the past you're living, it's the future. Yes. Uh, he writes, the future is a realm we have inhabited for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about what that means for you to actually do all this work of preserving and recovering the past as a way of inhabiting the future? Thank you so much for this question, because it means I get to love up on someone who is very, very important to me in my life. Um, Brian Kamoli Kuwara. He is a formidable scholar, translator, editor. And I appreciate this piece so much because it articulates how much Hawaiians value connection. And I think one of the rhetorical moves that is so important in this essay that he writes is really turning the conversation between this ridiculous binary between the past and the future to the conversation is about connection. You know, not just connection between the past and the future, but between Hawaiians and other Hawaiians, between people and their lands, people and their ancestors. And what he points out about time scale that Indigenous people operate on a geological and genealogical time that exceeds the likes of building permits and board meetings, you know, threatening us with the past as if the past is some lonely, inferior, disconnected thing, as if science got anywhere without ancestral knowledge, is not going to work. You know, when you've learned where and who you come from, you feel more rooted. And when you feel more rooted, you are able to stand stronger in your capacity to protect what and who you love. And Ask the Brindled is about aloha, but it's also about really chronicling what happens to someone when they realize, not only am I worth 
protecting, I am also a worthy protector. You know? Mm -hmm. Like back to that agency that you were talking about, like we don't need rescuing. No. This is about connection. Um, and Brian makes an invitation of it. You know? It's come, join us in the future that we have been making for thousands of years. Come join us. Noel Ravilla is the author of Ask the Brindled, her debut poetry collection, which was selected by Rick Barrett as a winner of the 2021 National Poetry Series. She's also an assistant professor of creative writing at the University of Hawaii at Maanoa, with a focus on indigenous and decolonial poetics. To find out more about her work, check out the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikifus. The song you heard at the top, composed by the last Hawaiian queen, Lili Uokalani, is titled Ku'upua Ipawakalani and was performed by the Hawaiian ukulele player Herb Ota Jr., who graciously gave consent to include a recording of his performance here. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>